This is Caught in the Act with Tim Clark. And welcome back. On August 28th, 2001, Gary Whitshead was waiting by the phone in Darwin. When it rang, he picked it up and started talking. What he went on to say was truly horrifying. He said that his lover, Avril Croft, and her teenaged daughter, Alana, had died on board the yacht they had all been sailing on together for the past few months. He admitted he had thrown both their bodies overboard into the sea around Biggie Island off the Kimberley coast, waters well known for being populated by sharks and crocodiles. He claimed he had not been able to use the radio on board and that there had not been a lot of blood. And, speaking to the startled detective on the other end of the phone, he said he reckoned it had been an accident. He maintained that claim of accident for many years, a claim which got increasingly bizarre as the investigation into the demise of the loving mother and daughter progressed. Ultimately, prosecutors put to a jury that it was no accident. 34-year-old Gary Douglas Whitsed faces two counts of willful murder. He's accused of shooting his 57-year-old girlfriend, Avril Croft, and her 15-year-old daughter, Alana Croft, with a hunting rifle as the trio sailed between Derby and Darwin on Avril Croft's yacht, The Celt, two years ago. Because of that cover-up, prosecutors had no bodies, and so no actual physical evidence of what had happened to them leaving the case of the State of Western Australia versus Gary Douglas Whitshead as one of the very few murder trials to be conducted without a body, or in this case bodies, being recovered. Joining us this week to discuss this case and the specific complexities of murder uh, trials and convictions where the bodies of the victim is unfound is Dr. Claire Ferguson, an Associate Professor at the School of Justice at Queensland University of Technology. Dr. Ferguson, thanks so much for joining us, especially as you are currently on maternity leave. It's my pleasure. Thanks for having me. Um, so firstly, tell us your academic background and why this particular portion of the law and criminology has, has drawn you so far in. Well, um, look, I study concealed homicides across the board, mm-hmm. um, not just ones without bodies. But the thing that interests me so much is... Um, this notion that many of these offenders have of being able to get one over on investigators. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's so little actual um, empirical work or research studies around how they try to do it or what to look for in a potentially concealed homicide or indeed even how to how to establish manner of death. Mm-hmm. How do we determine an accident from a suicide, from a homicide? Everyone sort of has to reinvent the wheel when they're trying to do this in a tricky case, um, regardless whether they're a coroner or a, a police investigator or what have you. Mm. And I, we'll get to it in, in, in a while. Well, I know you've researched um, lots of 
cases of this type in Australia and beyond. Have you ever sat in any trials and, 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 and looked at how these cases can unfold in a court of law? I haven't sat in on entire trials, um, but I have watched them online, um, <laughs> which we can thank COVID for. Um, and it's it's truly fascinating, I think, especially when you get firsthand um, experience hearing what defendants in those cases say. Mm. So th those that testimony in comparison to what the evidence tells us versus what they've said in previous statements and, and so on and so forth, I find absolutely fascinating and sometimes just incredible. <laughs> well, this case um, is incredible. And this case begins in around July 1999 with the passing of two yachts in the night at a marina in Malulaba in Queensland. One yacht was owned by Avril Croft, who was 57, and sailing around Australia with her 15-year-old daughter, Alana. Everyone who met them saw them as devoted to each other. They had been travelling for a while, but the ultimate destination was Sydney, where Alana would train to be a dancer. The other yacht was being crewed by Gary Whitshead, a 32-year-old who was also sailing the Australian coastline with his parents. After Avril and Whitshead met at that marina, they became very close very quickly. And despite their waterborne lives, the couple wanted to be close to each other. And so, in later 2000, Ms Croft bought a new yacht, the Celt, in Darwin, where Whitshead was also based. It was he who had handed over the cheque for the balance of the cost of that yacht. And when Mrs Croft and her daughter arrived, it was he who made three, with the trio preparing the boat for a trip to the Kimberleys in the coming months. Claire, in your studies of these type of homicides, they indicate cases involving body disposal and concealment commonly involve victims and offenders who are known to each other, usually intimate partners. What does the literature and, and your studies tell us about the reasons for that? Okay, well, the first thing is necessity. Um, of course, if you murder your partner and you're their intimate um husband or whatever, their partner, most people are aware that they're going to be the first on the suspect list. So offenders may try to conceal bodies or conceal homicides more generally, um, simply because they know that they have to do something. Otherwise, they're absolutely going to be in the firing line in terms of someone who will be suspected by police. Mm. But the other really interesting thing that's coming out of the research at the moment is that a f intimate partner homicide offenders who do this do it differently than other types of offenders. Um, and they seem to actually like it. They get something out of the concealment mm. itself. Um, it's not just about getting away with it. It's also about the notion of um, I guess the ego surrounding 
getting away with it mm. and perhaps even threatening beforehand that they will be able to get away with it and and making good on that promise mm. and as i mentioned in in this case this this couple became you know, very close very quick i mean that's that's obviously an indication of a connection but uh, in some cases that rapidity can also be a red flag in certain relationships on on how it might uh, travel in in the future absolutely we know um some research out of the uk shows that there's a timeline towards intimate partner femicide when a woman is killed and one of the elements there's eight elements in the timeline one of them is that the relationship progresses very very quickly um and others around might say too quickly mm. um, if they know the victim. But yes, it's it's a very common factor in relationships that end up in intimate partner femicide. We hear a lot about um, love bombing. Uh, I mean, it's a, it's a phrase that's more commonly used now than it ever has been. And perhaps because of the understanding of that, that um, as you say, that rapidity um, can uh, hide some other issues going on in the background, but certainly of the the person that's doing the bombing. Yeah, absolutely. If if the victim is getting nothing but love, 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 and everything's perfect, um, it's very easy to not be able to see those other things because it's mm. it's masked. Mm. I mean, and they don't they don't receive anything negative mm. often um, from the person that ends up being their killer, let alone um, potential red flags. So sometimes just the rapidity itself is the red flag. Yeah. Well, as the preparation for this trip continued, the apparent immediate harmony on board the Celt did not continue. Witnesses in Darwin spoke of seeing and hearing arguments between the couple, Mr. Whitsed and Avril Croft. And one in particular, one witness in particular, Teal Swinstead, said those arguments were frequent and heated and revolved around Alana. Whitsed told witnesses the teenager's repetitive music drove him crazy. She didn't answer him when he spoke to her. She didn't help with preparing the boat for the trip to come. And there were other arguments about money and repairs. One of which, a witness said, left Mrs Croft scared, shaking and insisting Whitsed leave with his belongings actually packed into a shopping trolley. But he stayed and they all left on board the Celt on what should have been the trip of a lifetime. From Darwin to Crocodile Creek and then Silver Gull Creek onto Cockatoo Island and Boomerang Bay. A more Australian trip you could not get. But there were more witnesses on that trip who witnessed more disharmony. Mrs Croft told another that she was thinking of kicking Whitshead off the boat. But again, he stayed and they all left together from Boomerang Bay on the northwest side of Biggie Island on July 25, 2001. That day was the last time Avril and Alana Croft were ever seen alive, other than by Gary Whitshead. Claire, your studies also show that there are 
three sort of broad types of killers who dispose of their victims or try to, organised criminals, sex criminals and domestic killers. And of those intimate killers, um, your research showed that many of them have the same characteristics. That's right. And this is backed up by the international literature as well. Um, there are often going to be male offenders and female victims. Um, of course, we have a, a major problem with violence against women in this country mm-hmm. and other places as well. Um, I think, interestingly, many of these body disposal cases, at least the ones that are done successfully, um, offenders didn't necessarily have any criminal experience. So we sometimes think about it academically as someone who kind of knows the system and knows what to do, but that's not necessarily going to be the case with um, domestic killers of this type. The the offender, now this is interesting, especially in light of the Whitsed case, because the offenders generally actually report the victim missing mm. and try to front foot the investigation mm-hmm. in terms of starting an innocent narrative. Mm-hmm. So um, if this was a quote unquote normal case, I would have expected Mr. Whitsed to call police straight away and say the victims have gone missing. Uh, but he didn't do that. So that's that's interesting uh, from a research perspective. Mm. And uh, some of the other um, characteristics that, that, that pop up regularly um, amongst these type of offenders, they didn't necessarily have um, a known criminal experience. You know, they, were, they weren't hardcore um, criminals. Um, they motivated by... Um, an anger and or an entitlement, I mean, you, you found, which sounds um, apt in this case. Um, and probably, or maybe most per- pertinently, witnesses common, commonly reported in these type of cases that victims were planning or trying to separate from an offender um, prior to the homicide. I mean, all those um, sort of research points seem to fit into um, the, the this this particular case as well yes I think I mean the the separation element is a known risk factor for intimate partner homicide across mm. the board mm. that's when the risk is the highest when the person is trying to separate um, so that's an expected finding but I think really interestingly on the criminal experience bit is that Despite the fact that many of these offenders wouldn't have a criminal history or or known criminal experience in terms of arrests and time in jail and things like that, they do often have a very long history of lying for gain um, and or sometimes frauds or suspected frauds that haven't been able to be prosecuted. Mm. So we're talking about this type of person that's going to go to police with this cockamamie story about someone dying accidentally or whatever, committing suicide, Um, they generally do that because they think that they're a very accomplished liar, and often they are, and that they will be successful in telling that story because people usually believe them or they think people usually believe them. Mm. Or or they're deluded enough to think that they might be smart enough to get away with it. 
Yes. I mean, sometimes you get offenders that are just like, hey, it's worth a shot. I might as well. I might as well try this story. Um, But generally speaking, they would give up very quickly on that. I think that many of these offenders don't realize that people have been suspicious of them probably their entire lives because their stories just don't hold Um, But they think that they can get one over on police. And sometimes they do. And sometimes they um, can be incredibly manipulative and they can use every um, trick in the book, really, to get investigators to feel sorry for them and get on side with their version of events. Mm. Well, it was a logbook on board the Celt that showed that from the day it moved from Boomerang Bay to Shelter Bay in Prudhoe Island, um, it sailed into the view of another vessel called the Chin 2. Three weeks later, Whitshead actually arrived at the side of the Chin 2 in a dinghy. He explained his crew was camping on shore and had been for weeks while he waited for the right conditions to set sail. The next day, he was invited to dinner on board the Chintu, but never showed up. And then days later, the Celt was spotted in the Joseph Bonaparte Gulf, close to Darwin. Two days after that, the phone rang at the home of Mr. Whitshead's stepfather in Perth, where he was first told of a terrible accident on board the Celt. That story was relayed to Detective Sergeant Shane Atkins, who made the call to Whitshead. And what he was told was a truly terrible tale, which he later relied on in court. The court heard Gary Whitshead's version of events varied, but he told police he accidentally shot Alana Croft moments after discovering her mother's body, who'd committed suicide because he threatened to leave her. Mr. Whitshead said, I don't understand what is going on on the legal side. I don't know if it would be called a murder, but I reckon it was an accident. That was some of the testimony Detective Atkins gave at the subsequent murder trial. Mr. Whitshead said, I spent a month on a boat. I've done some things wrong. I lost it. I then said, what happened to the girl? Mr. Whitshead replied, I honestly believe the girl was an accident, but I've killed Avril. I didn't mean to shoot her, but it just happened. Whitshead's version was that on the Celt, Avril Croft, dedicated, loving mother, had tried to hang herself whilst lying on a bunk. When Whitshead had discovered her, he said, he picked up the gun that was bought in case of rogue crocodiles in the Kimberley waters and for no real reason pulled the trigger. The result of that was that 15-year-old Alana, who at that precise moment was above the hatch where the gun was pointing, was shot fatally. Whitshead then said he bundled the young girl into a sleeping bag weighed down with clamshells and put her over the side of the boat. He then cleaned up her blood and then put the body of her mother into a 44-gallon drum and threw that overboard as well. He, according to himself, then sped weeks on board that same boat with that same gun pointed at himself. Suicide 
an accident, according to him. Claire, according to your research in these cases, the stories told by suspects can and will have a big impact on how the case unfolds, despite how crazy they may sound. Absolutely. So what happens is that this first narrative of the events really creates the first theory that investigators work with. What they usually would do would be to think about, is there evidence that refutes this theory? Or can this theory hold based on the evidence that we have? And they might come up with other theories as they go. Um, But all of this takes time. It takes resources, manpower, thinking about um, the case, thinking about the evidence, and also, especially in a case like this, developing victimological information. So they need to be able to um, do quite an extensive investigation of these people who were killed to figure out whether this could possibly be the case as crazy as it sounds. Mm. And relaying that case uh, or that that story that that's that reasoning that Whitshead came up with out loud it, it sounds just e- even more bizarre than as it reads on a page and he's uh, it sounds like a tall tale and you might make, think well it, why didn't he just say they fell off the boat but as you alluded to earlier the, the the stories that these type of offenders tell is actually part of the criminology it's part of trying to control a narrative and and mm-hmm. it, it, um Flowing on from that, controlling, still being able to control a victim even after they have maybe passed away. Absolutely. So saying that Avril had was suicidal and ended up suiciding, you know, people would think, how could she do that on a boat with her daughter Mm -hmm. where no doubt her daughter would see her body and there would be a time delay before they would be able to get back to port and her daughter would have to sit on this boat and blah, 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 blah. Everyone would be thinking um, that she would have to be truly very selfish mm. or maybe crazy in order to do that. And perhaps that um, conceptualization of her is something that Whitsed was drawn to. Because if she's nuts, then that means that his behavior all along probably is um, very logical mm. and makes sense. And his, Or his control of her or his yelling at them or being abusive or what have you um, goes back to her as the problem rather than him. Mm. And in your research, or some, some of it, also delay in, in discovering bodies or, or, or coming across a crime scene um, brought about by concealment is also A, part of the control, but B, a part of the concealment itself because um, the, the time in, in, in distance and in, in hours away from a crime means that potential evidence is destroyed. I mean, and in this case, obviously, Whitshead has waited three um, long weeks before he's done anything, um, getting in touch with anyone, let alone um, go to the authorities. Absolutely. So he was really quite successful in that regard. Um, he created such a delay that even with extensive searching, they weren't able to locate um, the bodies. In If it had been less time, they might have considered um, 
if there was a croc in the area that could have been um, one that would eat a body, mm-hmm. they can sometimes get that animal um, and dissect the animal and try to find remnants of a human body. Mm-hmm. Um, but of course, with weeks and weeks, it's not going to be useful or likely that they're going to find anything um, in this type of case. So really, it, it does work for him, doesn't it? Because then he can tell the tale however he wants to, and he can maintain his innocence for however long he wants. Mm. And obviously, time uh, in reporting or discovering a crime can then lead to more time being having to be taken by investigators. And, and this was particularly interesting that I read in some of your research the longer, obviously, these type of cases go, the harder they get for investigators and then the harder the investigators work and maybe the more demoralised they get, that can actually infect uh, the the investigation itself. Absolutely, especially when you're talking about um, the murders or missing children, I, I find mm-hmm. um, that... It's not like what you see on TV where you can just say, well, we never found the body. Searches actually have to take place. You have to look for the body. You can't just wait as an investigator for it to, you know, crop up somewhere. Mm. And so all of these unsuccessful searches based on witness testimony or based on tips or what have you can be hugely demoralizing um, when investigators are really invested in having an outcome and being able to find this person's remains, because generally that's what a family wants. Um, And investigators, you know, see themselves often as being helpful to families and being able to to do what whatever can be done to ease the suffering a little bit. They want to do it. And if they can't find a body um, and they can't get a straight answer out of someone who clearly has more information, it can become very um, just stressful. Mm, yeah. Now, no doubt the investigators in the Whitshead case were stressed, but it didn't take them long to charge Gary Whitshead, initially with the unlawful killing of 15-year-old Alana, based on what he told them about he, what he said he'd done on that boat. He swiftly pleaded guilty to that charge of unlawful killing. But after a team of police divers braved those crocodile and shark infested waters to search for clues, they found a 44 gallon drum and a hair sample in that silty water. But no bodies. Extensive police searches failed to find any trace of Avril or Alana Croft. The prosecution alleges Gary Whitshead dumped the mother and daughter into shark and crocodile infested waters. Nonetheless, the single charge of manslaughter was dropped and replaced with two of willful murder, which Whitshead denied, leading to a trial in 2003. Prosecutor Philip Urquhart told the jury Whitshead's unbelievable tale was just that. Not believable, improbable, fanciful were the words he used. Prosecutor Phil Urquhart said Gary Whitshead's explanation was so fanciful and so improbable that it obviously was a story designed to cover up what really happened on that yacht. But Whitshead stuck to it, 
added to it, in fact, with an interview with police revealing he also claimed he had lain next to Avril's body and held her hand when he had found her deceased. He said he believed she killed herself because he told her he was leaving. And his lawyer, Robert Mazza, reminded the court of another incredible case involving a missing body, that of Lindy Chamberlain, who was eventually, as we all know, exonerated after evidence was discovered in 1986 to support her claim that a dingo had taken her baby. Mr Mazza said that case demonstrated a person might be telling the truth, even when what they said seemed far-fetched. And he also warned the jury to be cautious of cases based on circumstantial evidence. Claire, your research has actually shown that despite the complexity and frustrations of cases like this, Australia actually has a higher rate of convictions in body-absent cases um, compared to most other countries. Why is that, do you think? Well, first we should say that there's very little research. Mm -hmm. So we don't have hard and fast rates for each country, but it seems to be based on our homicide rate in comparison to the number of no-body convictions we have, that we do this more than in other countries. And I think it's really interesting. There's a couple of things. Firstly, our police investigators are perhaps more well-resourced than they are in other countries. Mm -hmm. And that's because we have very few homicides in this country. Um, we have quite a low rate, so we can push resources into the homicides that we do have or the suspected homicides if you don't have a body. The other thing, though, is I think um, population density um, and the vast, vast areas that we have in Australia and the amount of things that can kill you in this country <laughs> um, means that we kind of have to be willing to do these types of prosecutions because mm. there are so many places where a body could be hidden that mm. are virtually impossible um, to be recovered. Um, and the other thing is, I think there's a little bit of Aussie spirit involved as well. Um, I think that we have homicide investigators and we have prosecutors that are keen to move forward against um, people that are suspected murderers and I don't think that um, a lack of a body is really a stumbling block for many of them. I think, you know, it's viewed as a challenge rather than um, how it's viewed in other jurisdictions, which might be, um, if you have an acquittal, a potential waste of resources. Mm. When I first moved to Australia, as, as I was already a journalist then, Claire, I was warned by a former... Um, boss in the UK that Australians bullshit detector is amongst the best in the world as well they can see <laughs> they can see through you do you think um, bullshit detectors times 12 or 14 on juries just are more, are, are, you know they're not willing to believe um, offenders or, or, or accused people when they when they um, when they roll out these uh, these terrible tall tales of, of what happened yeah yes potentially I think I mean I certainly noticed the bullshit detector when I moved from <laughs> Canada um, a few decades ago now. I think that's part of it, but I also think the willingness to um, to put it up is uh, is is 
Aussie true blue, mm. um, the willingness to move forward. Cause in other jurisdictions, I think it doesn't get to a jury. It, mm. They just don't prosecute no. because it's too hard. Mm. Yeah. Well, Gary Whitshead was convicted of the willful murders of both Avril and Alana Croft. And prosecutors argued that he should be sentenced to a strict security life term with a minimum of between 20 and 30 years for killing a mother and her daughter and dumping both their bodies into shark-infested waters. Justice Kevin Parker agreed that was done to cover up the murders and the jury had obviously rejected Whitshed's incredible explanation. But Justice Parker also said psychiatric and psychological reports provided to him provided some explanation for the murders. Personality problems related to a cruel upbringing, leaving which said unable to cope with the emotional tensions and the constrained living conditions on the yacht. Ultimately, he was sentenced to two mandatory life jail terms with a minimum of 19 years to be served before he was eligible for parole. He appealed those convictions on more than a dozen grounds, but the state's highest court also threw out his claims. It would put an incredible strain on human experience to accept that the two women met their deaths in the way in which the appellant had described the Court of Appeal said. The strands of circumstantial evidence, when woven together, present an overwhelming case of guilt against the appellant. So, Claire, as we now know, this final attempt by Whitshead to try and control the story of what happened to his partner and her daughter ultimately failed. But the other research, or you, some of the research you conducted around intimate partner femicide or IPF shows that coercive control in life means a man is more likely to kill their partner and then try and conceal it which I I find fascinating as well yeah so I think for some of these offenders firstly we should say we don't know whether there was coercive control in this case Mm. Um, there's not a lot of information about the background of the relationship except that it was tumultuous Mm. But we do know that there are links uh, between coercively controlling relationships and concealment of an intimate partner femicide. So the same tactics that are used to control the victim when they're alive are then used in an attempt to control how her death is viewed. Um, So they might use the same manipulation tactics on investigators that they've used on her, or they might use those tactics on witnesses or children or family members to try to get their story over the line. Um, And in these cases, it's like I said before, the, the concealment seems to be part of what the offender likes it's not just about killing the person it's about also winning Mm. and and being able to not be held accountable but also tell the story of the relationship and the victim in the way that they want to tell it Mm. on on their terms um and um, presumably they're in their minds without anyone to um contradict them of course, yes. You're you're killing the only person that can say 
that's wrong. I'm not suicidal. I never was suicidal. And you are the problem. Mm. Um, so it's very, it can be very convenient. If you add to that, um, a potential financial motivation, um, or avoiding the negative connotations surrounding divorce or separation or whatever, um, it can be a very attractive option for a person that views their partner as a thing and not a person. Mm. And as I mentioned off the, the the top of the podcast, you're on a you're on a um, maternity break from your career and your re- research. But where do you see the next step in this research in this type of cases going? What what were you what have you pondered on um, away from uh, away from your desk about what you might look into um, when when you get back there? I think that we need to think and research a lot more about how these offenders interact with police. So, and that's before and after the homicide. So, you know, it's clear that they manipulate investigators at domestic violence calls um, or, um, you know, calls about noise complaints or whatever because of fighting neighbors and what have you. Mm-hmm. They use those same tactics later, but we need to know the ins and outs of of what they do so that we can train investigators to be able to say, actually, that's manipulation 101. And I'll give you an example. Mm. I once worked on um, uh, worked with a sheriff's office in the U.S., and there was um, a case going on while I was there when they were interviewing a suspect and it was clear that he had murdered um, a woman and they were very suspicious of him. They were trying to get a version of events basically to sh- because they knew that the evidence was going to contradict it. As soon as he walked through the door, he said to the investigator, um, look, I used to be a paramedic. I'm, I'm really involved in health and um, well-being and all of this stuff. And I am really concerned about you because you are massively overweight. This is what the homicide suspect, the murder suspect (laughs) said to the investigator. Now you can imagine what the investigator is thinking now. Don't worry about any of this evidence and the whole reason why we're here. Now my focus is on how fat do I look (laughs) in this outfit? Right? Yeah. It's just, it's just distraction. And luckily that investigator couldn't care less if someone said they were fat Mm. um, and they just carried on. But it's a tactic that in it probably works to get the heat off of them Mm. and put it on someone else Mm. um, in in other types of interactions. Things like that. We need to um, get those examples in front of investigators so that they can recognize it when they go to a suicide or an accident or um, a type of death that looks non-suspicious, um, and they can ask a few extra questions to maybe uncover those uh, tricky ones. We in Western Australia here right at the moment, we're in the midst of the campaign called 16 Days of WA, which is aimed at highlighting and hopefully improving the um, the amounts of family violence and family-related homicides that we have in this state. One of the, um, the lines that has come out of the state government is their willingness to um, 
increase the law around co coercive control. And from what you've said there, um, we could all do with um, uh, some some lessons or a lecture or at least some um, pointers to try and recognise that amongst neighbours, family, friends, or you know, uh, maybe um, when your friend says to you, "Oh, he's done this or she's done that to me," it should spark something in your in your mind a, a recognition that that is not normal behaviour. Yes, I agree. And I mean, our police do a really good job, um, especially our homicide uh, investigators in this country do an exceptionally good job in comparison to other countries. Um, but we don't want it to get to that, mm. of course. So we we have to do better in the lead up. Yep. Well, Dr. Claire Ferguson, thanks so much for sparing some time and, uh, and insight from, from your young family this afternoon to, to talk to us all today. It's my pleasure. Thanks for having me. And a postscript to the story. This week, Gary Whitshead, as written about by one of our young gun reporters, Lauren Price, was released on parole by Western Australia's Prisoner Review Board. He'd undergone a re-socialisation program over the past 18 months or so, which included home leave with family and a promise that he was going to look for some work. A psychologist assessed his level of violent reoffending as low, but the terms of his three-year parole include disclosure of any intimate relationships to his community corrections officer and a ban on him applying for or possessing any firearm. Thank you again for joining us again on Court in the Act. If you have any questions or cases you want explored, then please, please email us at courtintheact at wanews.com.au. And remember, if you want to know what's going on in court, don't get caught short, get Court in the Act instead. See you next time.